Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery and today I'm excited to have Ashwin Raguraman, who's the founding partner at Bharat Innovation Fund, which is an early stage venture capital fund investing in deep tech startups from India, addressing global markets. Uh, uh, Bharat Innovation Fund has led investments in uh, entropic technologies, detect technologies, uh, Zumitor Biologics, uh, and uh, Ashwin was earlier the founder of India Innovation Fund as an alumni of uh, Symbiosis International University. Welcome to the show, Ashwin. Hi, Rohit. Good to be here. Awesome. So, so you know, how how did you get into into the into the world of startups and uh, and venture capital? So it goes back, um, Rohit, to my last fund. Right. Uh, I've had a fairly uh, non-linear path into venture capital. Uh, I've I've done very different things uh, in my past life. But back in around 2008, I spearheaded something called the Innovation Initiative from NASCOM, which is the industry body for uh, IT in India. And one of the things that we realized as, uh, you know, our our mandate was really to promote innovation in the the industry. And we realized that uh, a lot of the innovation was not going to originate necessarily in our large IT services companies or even in the mid-sized companies but uh, is going to originate from startups, which were extremely dynamic. And we uh, caught that trend a little bit early. Uh, Startups itself were not the flavor of the day back in 2008-9, and definitely not deep tech. But we thought that we should be promoting some of this in India, and we felt that startups is where the intervention should be, where we can try and support them. And therefore, we decided that, uh, you know, let's, put out something which goes beyond just mentoring sessions, which we were already running weekend mentoring sessions and support for startup market access programs. And we said, let's bring all this together and have as a central focus a fund, which will actually support startups that we want to uh, encourage and provide a tailwind to. And uh, so my role was really to set this uh, fund up, get it running, get a few people to come and run it and then move on to other things. But very interestingly, the set of people that I, uh, you know, created as a board for this fund, we created it uh, as an independent structure outside of NASCOM so that it could be SEBI registered as a professional AIF. And uh, the minute I set up a board, they said that, you know, why don't you, uh, since you've been involved in really setting up the whole thing, why don't you come and be a part of the investment team? And, And that's how I got into the investment side of things. Uh, so it's been a decade or so, and it's been extremely fulfilling and exciting as well. Interesting. And, uh, you know, how do you think about, you know, portfolio construction and what is the investment thesis when, you, when you're looking at deep tech uh, companies here in India? So to be honest, you know, we started this almost as with my first fund, the India Innovation Fund, as, as a mission, right? Can we support deep tech startups out of India? Because we felt the next wave of technology start technology out of India needs to come out of products and deep tech and not just IT services or services in other sectors like healthcare. And our our early efforts were therefore slightly mission focused, 
But we said we need to run this professionally and have a returns focus as well. And we tried to marry both a mission and a returns focus. And, you know, when we set up, set it up, we had no idea whether we we're going to get strong deal flow, the sort of startups that we're going to see. And fortunately, we tasted some success. And what we realized out of our early experience was that while deep tech started off as a mission for us, strategically, it was something that could actually form a moat uh, for startups. And therefore, a startup which is at the cutting edge of technology, as long as it gets its execution right and it gets over the early you know, product market fit hump, suddenly becomes very attractive to later stage investors and uh, is able to even address markets uh, you know, that others can't. And so it became a fairly strong strategic uh, play as well. Uh, the fact that we want to you know, focus on deep tech as a filter in the startups that we are trying to support. And uh, the other part that we discovered is there aren't too many deep tech focused startups in India. In fact, there were none at that point in time. Right. And even now there are only a handful. And we realized therefore we were playing in a white space and there are certain intricacies in diligencing startups in the deep tech space that we had uh, acquired some knowledge about as well, uh, which, which, which comes handy now. Interesting. And, you know, uh, what do you think about market size when you, when you analyze an investment? Is, is it important to look at TAM uh, when you are trying to analyze an investment? So I'll answer that question in two parts, Rohit. I think it's a very pertinent question. And it is, right. of course, something that we need to look at, uh, market size. However, when we are talking about cutting edge technology, uh, startups, which are at the forefront of innovation, very often they're addressing a market that doesn't even exist at the time of their creation. And there is a certain amount of market development that requires to take place. Uh, I've also realized, uh, having studied the likes of a Flipkart or a Paytm and so on, is that many of them started off addressing a market which if you really look at it, wasn't a scale market. They pivoted multiple times right. and broadened their uh, offerings to really hit a scale market, become unicorns, right? right? And so the learning is twofold. One is you need to look at a little bit about not just what is today's addressable market, but what could be tomorrow's uh, market size. And at the same time, you also real need to realize that if the ingredients are right, which is very strong technology, which is a good set of founders who are capable of executing, but have the flexibility to pivot or to look at adjacencies, then, you know, the market part of it will take care of itself. And you can't always go by a number that is there uh, today as an addressable market. And you'll have to look a little bit into the future as well. Right. And, uh, you know, what is the right level of diversification across a portfolio uh, to be uh, to, to be diversified at, you know, seed and uh, pre-seed level? And, and how do you look at, you know, reserve allocation these days? So let me answer the second part first, Rohit, which is, I think it's very important. Uh, one of my biggest learnings from uh, my first fund was that your returns are always better when you're able to participate in multiple follow-ons, especially if you are an early stage investor. As you go into your future rounds, as you move from pre-series A or series A towards series C and series D rounds, the, the rounds become quicker and at the same time they become bigger 
and your ability to participate strongly across those rounds also leads to better IRRs, which is you know, one of the reasons why we exist as funds, which is deliver returns to our investors. Right. And so uh, when we look at uh, uh, dry powder, uh, which is reserves, we, we definitely like to hold back at least 50% uh, for follow-on rounds in our startups. And our strategy will vary from startup to startup as in terms of, and as we see how they evolve uh, as to how many future rounds or follow-on rounds that we will participate in. But I do believe with the successful ones, the longer you're able to hold your position, you're able to uh, get stronger or let's say better returns. Um, on the first part, in terms of portfolio diversification, I think it tends to happen fairly naturally with the filter that we've applied which is that we are saying we are going to focus on startups that have a deep tech component or an emerging technology component. And having applied that one filter, we said that let's not apply any further sectoral type of filters across this. We do look at startups that we think have technology that is either globally competitive today or has the potential to become globally competitive very soon. And when we apply these filters, um, and we, we are fairly sector, sector agnostic otherwise, by default, there is a certain level of uh, portfolio diversification that happens from a sectoral uh, type of allocation. And uh, that, that reflects in you know, the six startups that we've invested to date in the last year and a half or so out of the Bharat Innovation Fund. We have one company in media tech, another in fintech, something else which is at the intersection of IOT and oil and gas. There's a fourth, which is in biotech. Uh, so you see where I'm going with this, right? We're right. fairly diverse uh, without really having to make an effort uh, to diversify our portfolio. And are you also stage uh, agnostic? Uh, no, we, we like to limit ourselves. I think there's a very different uh, knowledge graph in investing early stage and the way we define it is pre-series A to series B. Uh, our sweet spot is series A, um, but we do participate in some series B rounds as well. Um, so um, I think that is very different, uh, let's say investing early stage as compared to investing in later rounds and therefore we have restricted ourselves to uh, these three stages. Interesting. And, um, you know, Ashwin, uh, these are these are testing times for, for startups and founders because uh, because of the COVID-19 uh, situation and uh, it could be, uh, uh, you know, there could be an impending cash crash. But what, what are the few things which you could advise founders to prepare for the next, you know, three to six months? Well, I think, you know, we've been as a as a team at the fund been looking at what a whole lot of other funds are saying, what other LPs are saying, and there's so much information out there and on what should be done and what shouldn't be done and so on. I think fundamentally everybody's got the messaging right, right? Which is at the end of the day, how do you preserve cash and how do you extend your runway as far as possible? Because uh, there is a certain element of uncertainty and we still don't have a direction as to how things are going to pan out. Um, the second part of it, which I think is a little bit more specific advice that is coming out from our side, is also to have the flexibility to see what adjacent areas you can service so that there's, there's a, there, there aren't teams that are sitting idle in, in this situation. I mean, to give you an example, there's a company 
in my portfolio that does work uh, using drones uh, automate or to help with safety during large plant shutdowns. And there's a focus on the oil and gas sector. I mean, that's one of their offerings. And they've realized that there is a need for drones in the surveillance space in a larger way, uh, you know, and they've been getting inquiries from state governments to help uh, with that during COVID. And while this is not in normal times, this is not an area we would uh, look at because it's fairly crowded and we would not want the startup to venture into that area. We realized that, you know, their drone pilots, for example, are setting idle, right? And therefore, why not use them for something which is important from, a, you know, both a national perspective and at the same time, uh, be able to keep, uh, you know, the lights on and keep things running. And so a little bit of flexibility in trying to adjust to the situation is the second piece of advice that we are giving them. Um, and the third one, I mean, it sort of relates to the first one, which is you don't know how uh, or when you're going to be able to collect money from customers, uh, keep your engagements going as, as long as you can. Uh, there will be a time when your customers uh, who are perhaps a little bit conservative out of making payments now, will uh, sort of open their purse strings. And therefore, this is perhaps the time to build strong relationships um, with your customers by you know, providing them as much support as you can. Right, and uh, also you've been uh, part of the downturn in 2008 and nine. How does this downturn will compare to uh, you know, one which happened in 2009? Do you think it's gonna be uh, really bad uh, or it's gonna get better after, after you know? 2020 or 2021? I, I think it's a very different one to the extent that uh, this is triggered by something which is very different, right? Which is a health uh, type of uh, pandemic, right. which wasn't the case last time. So the variables are very different, which is really whether we are going to be able to, how quickly can you eliminate the virus, quote unquote, eliminate, as in uh, to the extent that it tapers off and there are fewer and fewer infections happening. The second is how quickly can you get something which is therapeutic out there uh, in, the, in the form of some sort of medical therapy. And then third is when do you get a vaccine out there? So the outcomes here from an economic standpoint are very largely dependent on some healthcare related outcomes, right? Yeah. And to that, the, there is a lot of difference. So if you really honestly ask me, what am I looking at as my first port of call or a leading indicator of how things could be, I'm looking at how, many, how, how quickly the cases are going up, let's say in India or other parts of the world of COVID infection, right? I'm looking at how many people are dying because of COVID. I'm looking at how the geographical spread is. And so those are the factors that I'm looking at leading indicators rather than purely economic factors, which I would have looked at in 2008-9. And I think a lot of what happens economically will be, uh, will be based on how quickly we can address the health uh, you know, part of the problem and the challenges related to the health problem. And I don't think there is anybody today, uh, including experts in the healthcare field, who can very clearly tell us that this is the direction in which things are going. And, uh, you know, uh, they would have to be a little bit um, of an Nostradamus to be able to do that at this point. 
right right no, absolutely uh, no i want to i want to go back into uh, into looking into your investment thesis and uh, uh, you, uh, you know what, what are the signs which uh, which you look at when you're looking at investing into a founder uh, and you know and are there any metrics which founders should hone on so that you know they could uh, look at the next round of funding yeah i think uh, being a founder is uh, i mean extremely challenging and uh, it's a very fine balancing act that you need to play right? right and i'll tell you why it's a balancing act uh, i mean you're juggling very very different problems forget about from day to day within a day and every hour you're dealing with a very different type of a problem right one at one hour it could be an hr problem the second hour it could be a cash flow problem Correct. third hour you could be you know talking to an employee about who's who's going through some stress so it changes from time to time and and i think the balancing problem that a founder really needs to be able to um, you know or, or the level of balance that an entrepreneur needs to be able to achieve is uh, is to be able to listen and get inputs from multiple places because you can't know everything yourself but at the end of it all having got inputs on let's say a topic from multiple sources be it your investor or other entrepreneurs or mentors is to be able to understand what is really important and to understand what to discard as well and what to take and follow right mm-hmm. and so you got to have your own mind while at the same time being able to listen to other people and to be able to follow what they're saying uh, and and i think that's one piece the second piece which i really think i you know evaluate Uh, to a large extent when i'm ev- evaluating either an entrepreneur or a founding team is to is to figure out how much they understand about the space that they're already in if i as an investor who's not in a particular business i mean i'm i might have evaluated five companies which are in a certain space if i have found that my knowledge is more than an entrepreneur who's pitching to me and he's trying to he or she is trying to build a business in that space and doesn't know it as well as i do then there is a problem there right, right and so when at the end of a conversation i just come out of that meeting and i say have i learned something about the space which is extremely new how much have i learned and how much do i get comfort that an entrepreneur has really figured out the nitty gritties of the space all the dynamics that go into you know what that space is about and then therefore has understood the problems well and has come out with a solution for that space i would say this is perhaps the the biggest thing that i evaluate in a in a founder right and and are there any metrics which uh, which you look at or any metrics which you disregard when you looking at investing into in, into a startup uh, i mean into a startup yes not necessarily a founding team okay we do look at uh, you know like you mentioned we do look at market sizes and where they could head we do look at i mean even though we're an early stage fund we want to see product market fit and so we don't look at revenue as a number but we do look at um, you know some level of traction and therefore the 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 capability and the uh, the validation of a paying customer the third part is we do look at unit economics very seriously right um not necessarily what today's unit economics are but what a steady state unit economics would look like because i think that is fundamental to um uh, to to success of it, the success of any startup 
And uh, so these are possibly, you know, two or three things that we look at. One of the other ones that we, you know, are able to look at at the early stage is also what sales cycles are looking at, uh, given that many of our startups are in the B2B space. And therefore, the ability and the time that it takes for an entrepreneur to be able to get his solution into his uh, clients is something that gives us some indicator as to what his ability to sell, his or her ability to sell is. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, Ashwin, for, for, for a CEO, it is really important to, to build a great team. So, uh, so, you know, what do you think in, in your view are some of the best CEOs looking to recruit uh, the best talent in, in, in their team? You know, what, what, should, what should they do to create a second level of leadership uh, team uh, below them? And, uh, you know, is there anyone in your portfolio who's done, the, done a great job with it? Yeah, I think this is a very important point. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, at the end of the day, we we, we invest in great founders. Right. And I think one skill that a great founder has is the ability to inspire and bring in talented people into a fairly low resource situation, right? I mean, a startup cannot pay very often, even a funded startup can't pay and don't pay as much as people with, with great expertise may get from a large company. And therefore that ability to inspire people and to demonstrate or to show somebody else your vision is something a great founder will always have. Um, so um, I think many of the ones, uh, there are at least two or three founders uh, that have been either earlier part of my, my earlier portfolio or this current portfolio who've been able to demonstrate the ability to build the next level well and I think the way they have done it is that rather than thinking about hiring as a typical recruitment process, they have really spent time with potential candidates, sometimes many months before they've actually gone in and brought the next level of talent into their company. So they have thought ahead and said, perhaps in March, that listen, I need somebody by September. Let me start engaging with two or three of these candidates, have conversations, use their networks well to be able to identify potential hires for senior roles. And then there's a you know, conversation or multiple conversations that happen so that, um, so that there's a level of comfort that is established. And this is very important for, um, for startup teams or to build startup teams is what I feel. Uh, the other point on this, the whole hiring of the team part is, uh, you know, very often we've got into companies, uh, you know, before they have the next level of teams and therefore we've seen the journey from, uh, let's say a founder driven startup to a startup that has the next level of teams. Some of them are actually building out their next level, uh, the ones that are in my portfolio. And I can tell you this, uh, the early stage of a startup before they perhaps raise a series A round, uh, very often the founder, if it's, if it's just one founder or even if it's two of them, a significant portion of their time is either going into developing product or into acquiring customers, right? So typically there'll be this one product guy in the founding team and the other guy will be the customer facing guy okay. and will spend a significant portion of his time acquiring customers. The minute you raise a series A or maybe even a series B round, more than 50 to 60% of your time is actually spent on getting the right team together. And I've heard many founders say that, hey, all I'm doing morning to evening 
is trying to either engage my existing team or in bringing in new people into the company. And I think that's the only way to go about it. Interesting. And, you know, what has happened in the last couple of uh, years, uh, especially in the Indian ecosystem is we got a uh, large number of early stage funds uh, who've come in and an equal number of, you know, entrepreneurs are trying to trying to build some exciting products. Uh, so, so do you think um, that there's been an oversupply of capital and has that changed the, you know, founder and VC dynamic uh, since you've been investing last 10 years? Wow, that's another good question. Uh, yeah. If you ask me honestly, there isn't an oversupply of cap capital. Okay. Um, there is still a shortage of capital in India, especially domestic capital. Um, and in some sectors like biotech, if you try and raise large series B or C rounds, a lot of our companies actually need to raise that from uh, the Western world. Um, so we, we, we do need more capital uh, and there isn't uh, as much There's, there is a lot of i mean as you correctly pointed out the number of entrepreneurs have significantly increased okay. and therefore i've seen two things happen which is because the base of the pyramid in the as far as the pipeline is concerned has uh, has more or less a base of the funnel has in, increased in size you're having a lot more quality entrepreneurs who are finally, you know, getting funded. And then there's a greater possibility of successful entrepreneurs or unicorns or whatever metric you use to define a successful startup. At the same time, what I've observed is there's a lot more noise in the system as well, right? Entrepreneurs have become smarter and entrepreneurs have become more mature. But that what has also happened is that there are entrepreneurs who are not that great, but who've realized or who learned to pitch extremely well because there's a lot of knowledge floating around, right? Interesting. And it has become harder to separate the men from the boys, to be honest, uh, for investors like us. Uh, but uh, having said that, I think that's just a, a smaller problem. I think the larger problem is that there are so many good entrepreneurs uh, who could make it had they the risk capital that they needed at the right time. And being able to sustain yourself through the, I mean, every entrepreneur goes through different points of low in their journey, especially in their early, early journey. And there are many who have succeeded only because they somehow managed to survive at the low times. And I would imagine that uh, percentage would go up significantly if we had a little bit more risk capital for, you know, the value of death, uh, and, and some of those startups which otherwise, you know, die, uh, had they survived and crossed that chasm, would actually uh, have ended up or will end up becoming extremely successful. Got it. And, uh, you know, this, this is for founders who are looking to drive, you know, um, value from, from the board. Uh, what, what advice would you give to founders on, you know, how to, how to make their boards as efficient as possible and what advice to take on and what to disregard when they're looking at uh, taking advice on the board? So Rohit, there's a, it's a little hard to um, answer this question from a very, uh, in a very broad sense, simply because, every investor who comes onto a board behaves very differently, right? And different funds have different levels of, uh, let's say touch, some are high touch with their entrepreneurs, some prefer to invest and then, you know, just uh, sit back a little bit and, and, and give a lot more space to the entrepreneur. 
So it is a function of, I think, when the entrepreneur decides which investor to go with, assuming they have a choice, or which investor to approach first, I think it's important for them to speak with other entrepreneurs who engaged with some of the investors they're looking to tap into, to try and find out how those investors behave when they're on their boards, uh, just to see whether that's the sort of style of investor that you want, right? And so there's no single answer. We ourselves, or I myself, uh, truly believe that as a board member, our role should be restricted to the fact that we are, you know, nothing more than a sounding board to the entrepreneur. And I think that's, that's the first uh, role that we should play, which is help the entrepreneur think through his problems, make sure that he's thinking about all aspects, taking all risks into account, not missing out on opportunities, and really truly acting as a sounding board because life can become lonely for an entrepreneur, uh, yes. especially in their hectic sort of, you know, lifestyle. Um, I mean, we do help and most funds, I think, which are uh, of reasonable quality do help in other aspects like, you know, market access to market and access to follow on rounds of funding and other investors. But if you go beyond that, I would just say that, um, uh, that the style I like and prefer is to be a sounding board to the entrepreneurs. And, and, and therefore my advice, you know, to answer your question a little bit more directly, uh, my advice to entrepreneurs would be uh, to understand your the person who's on your board well, uh, establish a strong uh, relationship with that um, board member by adapting to uh, to the sort of style that you see that person having. But even before you get into all that, if you do have the ability to choose uh, either your board member and or therefore your investor, uh, then choose somebody who you think will fit your entrepreneurial style. Right, because it could be a 10-year journey relationship with the VC and founder. Yeah, and it's a very, very, I mean, I think some entrepreneurs may actually end up spending more time with their, uh, you know, board member or investors than they do with their spouses. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe you need to give this a lot more thought than, uh, you know, you do otherwise. Interesting. And uh, I quickly want to do the top three. Uh, uh, what's your favorite business book? Uh, so, when you say business book, can you... Uh, it, yeah, it could be a non-fiction business book. Uh, oh, you're talking about a, a, an actual book. Okay. Correct. Yeah. Something along the lines of a playbook. <laughs> uh, so I think just out of uh, pure um, non-conformance uh, and true entrepreneurial spirit, there's a book uh, by Richard Branson called Losing My Virginity, which uh, stands out in my head as... Uh, as a business book, if you can call it that, that I really enjoyed reading. Correct. I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started your first fund, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? That's a good question. Would I have done anything differently? I think um, there were so many variables and unknowns that we were trying to address that uh, I actually don't think we would have done too much, uh, you know, very differently. We did have a successful outcome with that fund. We had a full uh, exit of our portfolio to a secondary fund. We did exit some company individually as well. Um, I think the way, um, or, or I would have, you know, tried, what I would have preferred to have done with that fund is to be able to actually think seriously about a follow-on fund to that. Um, 
uh, which which we didn't do. And perhaps, uh, so not while I was setting up the fund, but towards the later part of the fund, I would have seriously focused on uh, trying to figure out how we could follow on with, uh, with another fund to that. Got it. And, and do you have any favorite online tools, example, a Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Yeah, I think there's, there's one reason why, uh, I mean, forget about the recent bad press, right. but if you think about it, otherwise there's one reason why the Zoom IPO really, really did well, right? right? And uh, it's because it's got a fantastic product. I <laughs> mean, we're talking on Zoom right now. Correct. And I was so glad when I saw a Zoom link uh, rather than, you know, some of the other links that are shared for some of these conversations. So I think they've got a fantastic product. And then, I mean, look at it this way. The last couple of weeks have, uh, should have been extremely challenging times for Zoom because half the world seemed to, you know, move from physical meetings to online meetings. And I'm sure a lot of that lo load would have come on Zoom. And uh, they seem to have managed it well. The quality of my calls are, are still as good. We are having a great conversation here. Okay. Uh, and so they've managed that transition. At the same time, I'm just thinking about the tools that I used prior to Zoom for exactly the same purpose. And Zoom is a you know, clear head and shoulders above some of those uh, in terms of what it delivers in terms of quality. No, absolutely. Zoom is also one of my, my favorite products. I've uh, you know recorded more than hundred episodes on Zoom. So so that's that's one of the products I love. And uh, what is the best way people can reach out to you and uh, know more about Bharat Innovation Fund? Uh, I think uh, I mean my email is out. I'm on LinkedIn, and normally when people reach out to me on LinkedIn, I share my email uh, so that people can write in with further details. Uh, so it is typically the easiest way to to get to me. Uh, otherwise, I'm at uh, ashwinar at bharat.fund. Uh, they can email me directly and talk about their startups. I mean, the only caveat or the only suggestion I have to people who reach out is to do their homework a little bit on areas that we invest in and reach out basis that and basis whether they think, you know, we would invest or we can help in any other manner. And um, that goes a long way when when we see that an entrepreneur has done a little bit of homework and taken the trouble to read a little bit about what we're investing in or what we've invested in, uh, in terms of our overall initial impression of uh, the person who's reaching out to us as well. We'll, we'll put the, the email and LinkedIn uh, IDs on, on, on the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for, for taking our time and speaking to us. I really appreciate speaking to you. No, pleasure talking to you, Rohit. Uh, appreciate all the questions you asked and Hope you have many more such uh, podcasts. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com. <laughs>